Now let's turn for our scripture reading to the sixth chapter of the gospel according to John. I want to read there from verse 25 through to verse 51. And I apologize under the circumstances that I didn't communicate to Duncan that the passage that had been set for today is no longer set for today, so I think no passage will come up on the screen. Jesus, uh, beginning of this chapter, has just fed the 5,000. Very interesting interchange there, I think you'll find, with Philip, where he challenges Philip to do something, uh, even although he knows already what he is going to do. And then after that event, Jesus crosses the lake and meets the disciples actually on the sea. And the next day, the crowd realize he has gone and uh, they get into boats and they follow him. And they're now this great crowd again together on the other side of the sea. When they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, When did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What works do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, 
Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. My guess is that if in St. Peter's here uh, I was now to go around the room and point to one another and ask you to stand up, which I'm not going to do, but stand up to tell us what passages or books in the Bible have had the greatest influence on you, I don't think you would be altogether surprised by the question. We believe, of course, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and all of it is useful for us. Paul says that in 2 Timothy chapter 3. But we're also aware, even just from reading our New Testaments, that not every part of the Bible makes the same impact on every Christian believer. And so many Christian believers will turn perhaps to the book of Psalms or perhaps to John's gospel and some to Paul's letter to the Romans or to the Ephesians or to other places, partly because these are the sections of Scripture that have most shaped them. And that's not something to be ashamed of or embarrassed about for this reason, that if you read through the New Testament, you will very quickly realize exactly the same was true of the apostles. If you were to check out all the quotations and the allusions in the pages of the New Testament to the scriptures of the Old Testament, you would find that there are about five books that dominated the thinking of the early church Christians. Yes, there are books um, that they never quote from. It would even seem that there are books in the Old Testament to which they never allude in their comments. And yet, of course, they believe that all Scripture is useful and profitable, but they are conscious, and you can find this in our Lord Jesus himself, but the scriptures of a kind of pyramidic shape. And there are some passages in Scripture, some books in Scripture that form the foundation, and there are passages in Scripture that, as it were, at the summit point you 
to the very heart of the Bible's message. And so, as I say, if I went round the room and asked you, what, what book, what author, what passage, what text has especially impacted you? My guess is that we would uh, have a very wide array of answers that would make, I think, for a very interesting meeting indeed. And since we are very last minute today, it just strikes me that it would have been a very good way to spend the Lord's Day morning. And that's true. I know for me, a friend, a colleague said to me once, it seemed out of the blue, you're very Johannine. You're very Johannine. And I'd never thought about it, but when I reflected on it, I, I realized he had, he had caught something about me that probably the author and the book that has most influenced my life has been this Gospel of John. And so for me, life has these punctuation marks that all come from the Gospel of John. And it's one of those marks I want to turn eventually to this morning for a very special reason that I'll leave right to the end. So keep watching this space and keep listening. And I suppose from a personal point of view, I'm Johannine because I was awakened to spiritual realities by a statement in the gospel according to John chapter 5, verses 39 to 40. I'd been encouraged to read the Bible when I was nine years old. I'd read it diligently until I was 14, and then I was reading these verses. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but you will not come to me to have life. And in a moment of illumination, I realized this was exactly where I was. A little boy reading the scriptures, trying to understand them, and believing that's what it meant to be a Christian. That and helping old ladies across the street equaled being a Christian. And here was Jesus himself, as it were, walking off the pages of the New Testament and saying to me, Sinclair, you have been searching the Scriptures because you think that's where you find eternal life, and it is a great thing to do. But you've been missing the main message, and you haven't yet come to me. And then a few chapters later on is the text through which I did come to Christ and was converted, became a Christian. In chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And there are words here that, as I say, for a reason I'm going to hold to the end, have made a lasting impression on me. And I want to turn to this section largely because they've been in my mind during the course of this week. This is a passage, the passage about the bread of life. Jesus feeding the 5,000, walking on the water, followed by the crowds who are, as he says, excited about food that perishes. I mean, amazingly, they say to him, what sign do you do? And it seems that it hasn't even dawned on them 
that they have just seen one of the greatest of all his signs in the feeding of this multitude. And he speaks very directly to them. Like as directly as I felt he was speaking to me from the previous chapter. And he says, here is your problem. You are and always have been looking for food that perishes. And what you actually need is the bread that comes from heaven. That is, as he explains in verse 37, Jesus himself. Your greatest need is not for the food that perishes, but for the Savior who will give you eternal life. And Jesus does in this passage we've just read, what John tells us towards the end of his gospel is the reason he wrote the whole gospel. Not every author in the New Testament tells you why he wrote the book, but John tells us why he wrote the book. I've written these things, he says, out of all the things I could have told you about Jesus, I've written these things especially so that you may come to believe in him and believing in him, you may have eternal life. And Jesus is setting himself before them, setting himself before us and offering himself the bread that will satisfy our needs the bread that will produce life that will last forever. And he does this in, I think, three dimensions. Or if we think of this as a jewel that we might hold up to the light and look at some of its facets, there are three facets of our Lord's teaching here I want us to think about. The first, briefly, is that Jesus explains to them that there is an element of mystery in the gospel. There is an element of mystery in the gospel. And we notice that because what he keeps on emphasizing is that if someone comes to believe in him, it's the result of what God has done. Indeed, he goes so far as to say to us, that our becoming believers, if we have become believers, is not something that started with us, but something that started with God. It started with God giving his son as bread for the life of the world. And it goes on with the Father giving Jesus to us individually as true bread, as he keeps on emphasizing. But then is the striking emphasis that if anyone responds to Jesus, it is because of a sovereign, gracious working of God in their lives. It is not something that happens to us just because we thought it was a good idea. And for all it may seem that we have been conscious and decision-making in the whole process, as indeed we really have, or we never have come to Christ, all of that, Jesus explains to them, is because of the will of the Father, because of the purposes of the Father, because of the sovereign, gracious activity of the Father. And you'll see how he emphasizes this, for example, in verse 37. 
those who will come to me are all that the Father gives me. And then again in verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. And again in verse 44, even more directly, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And of course, if we'd read John's gospel from the beginning, we would already understand the foundations of that. Remember the conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus in chapter 3, when it's clear that Nicodemus, who I presume probably knew the Old Testament by heart because he was the great theologian in Israel and theological education was memorization and application, and Jesus sits him down and says, Nicodemus, you are blind. And so long as you are blind spiritually, you will never see the kingdom of God. And so long as you think you can see, you will remain blind. It's only when the Spirit opens your eyes and opens your heart that you will be able to see and enter the kingdom. And it's always been to me the most striking thing in that conversation that what Nicodemus says to Jesus who has said, without this sovereign, gracious work of God, you will never see the kingdom. And Nicodemus says, I can't see that. It's stunning. He hasn't even heard what Jesus has said. Nicodemus, until your eyes are opened by the work of God's Spirit, the wind that blows where the wind wills to blow, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And you see, we might well respond to that and say, well, surely that's a teaching that would drive you to despair of yourself and cast you on the mercy of God. But isn't that what the gospel does? Doesn't the gospel lead us to despair of ourselves and to cast us on the mercy of God? And that's what Jesus is teaching these people who have gathered because of the signs, because of the physical bread. Now, we all know that's a teaching that people sometimes find difficult. And actually, if you read on to the end of this passage, the people said, this is just too difficult for us. We're turning away. And sometimes people say very foolish things. Christians say very foolish things like, I don't believe in this. Which is to say, let me tear many verses out of my Bible. Let me not enter into what Paul says, that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus because he has chosen us before the foundation of the world. Now, how as Christians are we to, how are we to resolve that if we find it difficult? Well, I think here is the answer in a passage like this, in, in many ways a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 11. Probably apart from the Beatitudes, the most famous passage in Matthew's gospel. If you're an Episcopalian, you know the words as the comfortable words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Come to me, all you who are weary 
heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We all know those words. But you know the words that precede those words? For Jesus prays and he says, Father, I thank you, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have kept these things hidden from people who regard themselves as wise and understanding. And you have graciously revealed them to babes. You know, Jesus' teaching created a lot of emotion then, and it creates a lot of emotion now. But the best thing for us to do is to ask ourselves this question, if we are truly Christ's. Jesus, what did you believe? Whatever you believed, I want to believe. And here is what Jesus believed. He's not asking us to understand the mystery of the workings of God. But he is saying this for two reasons. One is to humble our pride. Being a Christian is not something we have manufactured in our own strength. And the other thing, of course, is to stabilize us in our insecurities. Because he goes on to emphasize, doesn't he, that he holds on to and keeps everyone he calls to himself. And what an anchor that is. When I fear my faith will fail. That's it. That's it. Done. Because it's all of my faith. No, no. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He took hold of us by his grace. And he's teaching these people as he teaches later on in John chapter 10 that when he takes hold of us in his grace, he never lets go. And it's very interesting when you read on through John's gospel, you, know, you should notice two things happening. One is that Jesus has a kind of favorite way of describing Christian believers. He describes them as those the Father gave me. Those the Father gave me. And John has a way of describing himself. The disciple Jesus loved. I personally do not think he is saying, I know Jesus loved me more than any of the other disciples. I think what he's saying is, I have discovered what is true of all disciples. I am the disciple Jesus loved. I am a disciple the Father has given as a love gift to his Son. And that's why I know I am the disciple Jesus loved. What a thing to be able to say to yourself as a believer in times of stress and difficulty and discouragement and disappointment. I know he will hold me fast because I am his father's love gift to him. And I am the disciple Jesus loved. And this is a great mystery, a great mystery. No Christian can ever understand why is it that God set his love upon me. But it is a mystery that Jesus 
is speaking to these disciples about. So there's an element of mystery, in a sense, behind the gospel that comes to the surface in the gospel. And then the second thing, the central thing that Jesus is emphasizing is there is a living person at the heart of the gospel. And that is so important for us, for all to understand. There is a living person at the heart of the gospel. I remember uh, in a church I served a a little lady, delightful little lady who was about two-thirds my size, uh, elderly, squeezed up to me uh, in the in the building one day, and she she said to me very conspiratorially, "You know, everyone around here thinks I've been a Christian all my life," and she she must have been pressing eighty, and then she gave a little giggle and she said, "But I've only been a true Christian for the past two years." And you know, it was a church in which every Sunday morning we stood up and we recited the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his Son. And she had done that. She must have done that thousands of times. She knew it forwards and backwards. But then her eyes had been opened and she realized it's not a creed that saves, nor reciting it. It's Christ himself and this is what Jesus points them to, doesn't he? He says, he says, you got manna, your forefathers got manna in the desert from Moses, and you've got bread from me. Yesterday afternoon, you all got bread from me. But what you really need is neither the manna from the wilderness nor the bread that you got yesterday from me, but the bread that comes down from heaven. I myself, who am the bread of life, who gives life for the world. I think partly because of the jobs I've had in life and partly because I've been sustained to this great age, I now look back at the privileges um, of the people I've known. And of course, because I've been a minister, especially of the ministers I've known. Um, and I thought whimsically this morning, I probably could name drop to you the people that you watch on YouTube or listen to because I'm this old and I've had this job and, and I know them. And if I were to recite their names and name drop, which I'm not going to do now or later, okay? If I were you, what my first question would be, what's he really like? I see him. I hear him. I watch him from afar. But is he really like that? What's he really like? And you know, in many ways, I think that is, that's about the most important question you could ask about Jesus. What's he really like? If you're a Christian, the importance of that is because what God is doing in our lives is making us like him. We become like the people with whom we live, don't we? We develop 
In a good relationship, we develop parallel instincts. We don't need to ask each other what we are thinking. I always love going out for a walk and seeing dog owners um, and thinking, isn't it amazing how like their dogs some people become? And why does that happen? It's it's because the, the dog and they become kind of mirror images of one another. Um, if you've never had a dog, it does seem a very strange thing to stick your face in their face, you know. And it, it does seem to affect people. So the reason it's important for Jesus to say to us, you need to know what I'm like, is because as Paul says in, in Romans eight twenty nine, that what God has destined Christians to be is conformed to the likeness of his Son that he might be the firstborn of many brethren. So what is Jesus like? You remember, the, the, some of you of an age will remember uh, the day when the fad was to wear a bracelet or a locket with the letters WWJD, what would Jesus do? And actually, it would have been much better if we had had letters that said WWJD W-J-L, what would Jesus be like? That's a challenge, isn't it, really? You know, if if a non-Christian were to say to you, but what is Jesus like? And here it's marvelous how Jesus uh, very patiently explains to these people what he is like. Yes, he says, your Old Testament The left-hand side of your Bible, he might say to us, is full of pictures of me. And one of those pictures is the bread that came down from heaven. But it was just a picture. And if you didn't see beyond the picture, then you would have missed the point of God giving you the picture. It was a sign. It was a signpost to me. Because I have come down from heaven, he says, as the bread of life. And I want to tell you, I want to answer your question, what am I really like? And you just need to read down through the verses to see that. Verse 35, for example, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You're not speaking about physical hunger and thirst, obviously. He's saying, I will meet your deepest needs. Verse 37, he says, If you come to me, I will never cast you out. You could be a Christian and have lived many years with that fear. Because all your faults and failures, the end of the day is going to cast you out. The psalmist of that fear, Psalm 102, you lifted me up and then you discarded me like a a child would throw out a broken toy. And he's saying, no, I'll never turn you away. What an amazing Savior he is. We, We meet people, we get ourselves in situations, and our every instinct is just to turn our backs and go. But he never, ever does. He's come down from heaven for us, he says in verse 38. And again, if we'd read John's gospel from the beginning, we'd remember how it began in heaven. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus. 
and the Word was face to face with God, and He was God. And that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's not only come from heaven, it's He brings heaven. His presence is, to be in Jesus' presence is to taste the sweetness and the purity and the love and the joy of heaven. And in verse 39, he will never let us go. It's not just that he will never turn us away, but having take hold of us, he'll never let us go. And in verse 40, he'll give us eternal life. And in verses 39 and 40, he will, he will raise us up on the last day. And in some ways, the best thing is the first thing in verse 35, that he is this for everyone who will come to him. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's what he's like. We want, to, we want to say, what is Jesus like? And sometimes foolish Christians will say, the way I like to think about Jesus is this. And that doesn't matter a farthing. It's not the way I like to think about Jesus that matters. It's the way he really is. And here he tells us himself, this is not second hand. This is not me. This is not the elders. This is not the denomination. This is not the confession of faith. This is Jesus himself speaking to these people in this moment of amazing self-disclosure, especially since he knew there was a hostility building up in their hearts against him. In a way, it's a kind of parallel earlier on in the Gospels to what happens in John 13 when he gets the basin of water and he goes round kneeling before the disciples. And if you read through the chapter, you'll see very clearly one of them was named Judas Iscariot. And he washed his feet. That's what he's like. And of course, that leads to the third dimension of what he's teaching them there. There's, yes, an element of mystery in the way in which he works in us before we come to him. There is this wonderful explanation of his person, his wonderful, loving, gracious, drawing, saving, keeping person. And then the third thing, of course, is his emphasis on so what? What is the response that this gospel requires? And it's summed up really, isn't it, in one word. Come. Come. Come to me. Um, our optometrists use all kinds of newfangled machinery to test our eyes these days. But sometimes they will still say to you, you know, in the midst of all the tests now, focusing on focusing on the, the letter K. So let's be spiritual optometrists and say, okay, focus on come. 
And if we did that, if we did that, again, having read John's gospel from the beginning, we, we would have seen that verb again and again. It, right from chapter 1, two disciples of John come to Jesus. Uh, later on, Nathaniel comes to Jesus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. The woman at the well comes to Jesus. The Capernaum official comes to Jesus. What does it, what does it mean to become a Christian? He's a real living person, as real as living the same today as he was then. And to become a Christian means that you come to him. And those folks in the early chapters of John's gospel, what what different people they were, what different needs they had. Um, Leading member of Jerusalem society on the one hand in chapter 3 and then this this woman who has gone through a whole barrage of husbands and is living with a man who isn't her husband in, in chapter 4. And uh, he is the same Jesus. But even more significant for them is that as the same Jesus for all, he is the Jesus who is able to save them in their needs. And he marvelously does this. That was the one thing they all had in common. They all needed Jesus. And the wonderful thing about Jesus, as he says in verse 35, is that he has the capacity, the ability, the love, the grace to save all those who will come to him. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. All, no matter how disabled, no matter how disqualified, can come to him and know they will never be cast out. And this, Jesus explains, you'll see it if you read through the passage again, this is what it means to believe. It means to come to him trustingly and to find that he is everything that he promises to be and to discover in a living way by the help of the Holy Spirit that he is the same today for you as he was then for them. That's what Hebrews 13 means when it says he's the same yesterday, that is in the days of his ministry, Today, now, and then marvelously forevermore, he will never change. He will never go back on his promises. He will never turn away anyone who comes to him. And he will hold on to them forever, as he goes on to say, and raise them up on the last day. So what are we to do? I suppose there may be some in the room who uh, discovered the answer to that question by, by singing a hymn we sometimes still sing, just as I am, O Lamb of God, I come. That is the wonderful thing about Christ. You come to him, trust in him, just as you are. As a Christian of five years standing, 10 years standing, 20 years standing, 
50 years and still standing. Your daily need, your daily delight is to come to him and to find that he's everything today that he was on that day when he spoke to these people. I mentioned that there was a special reason why um, this passage has been in my mind is because I've, I've been thinking about uh, a friend and colleague of many years ago, a very great scholar, an Old Testament professor and friend who suddenly was taken from this world at the age of 49. And I've never forgotten the impress that was made on me and all the feelings that I had about the loss of such a, a, an amazing man who whose imprint was in the lives of so many students. And I remember as we drove away out of the, the graveyard uh, in Philadelphia, I just happened to look down and I could hardly believe it. The, the security company that guarded the graveyard had left their company sign uh, just as we entered onto the highway. And having heard one of my colleagues read these words, that whoever comes to him, to Jesus, he will never cast out and he will raise him up on the last day. The words I read were these, security by advent. And I thought, of course, security by advent. And his advent is here. He speaks about it. He has come. He has come down from heaven. And he's coming again, and he's going to raise the dead. And uh, the combination of the words of Jesus and this signpost that was meant to point you to the company but pointed me to the hope of glory. I thought as we left the graveyard, it would be possible to walk into the future knowing that he was secure and that we were secure in him. So I suppose the question is, what is Jesus really like? And this is what he is really like. He is really, really like this. You can come to him. You can trust him. You can come back to him. He'll never turn you away. Ever, ever, ever. What a great Savior and Lord. And so his question for us is, am I your Savior? Have you come to me? His question for those of us who are Christians is, have you wandered away from me? Be sure I will never cast you out or turn my back on you. So come and I will receive you. What, what a saviour. Hallelujah. What a saviour. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son into the world to be our saviour. And we thank you that although 
uh, down through the centuries, there, there have been many sermons preached about Jesus, and many preachers have pointed people to Jesus. We thank you that in this passage, Jesus points us to himself, by himself, through these words. And we pray that in these words, forgetting all human accents, we may hear the accent of this wonderful Savior, hearing him call us. And whatever our fears and needs, our doubts and sorrows, our pains and challenges, our waywardness and our backsliding, Lord, we pray that you would draw us to yourself, that we may come to him and find all we need in him. And we pray this in his name.